welcome to Epiphany Fellowship's podcast, where our goal is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. We pray that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message and will allow the Word of God to dwell in you richly. What's up, family? My name is Pastor Ernie Grant. I have the privilege and honor of serving you guys today. And I'm so glad to be with my Epiphany family. Uh, shout out to my bishop, Bishop Eric Mason, all of the elders and friends that are joining us today. Why don't you do me a favor? Why don't you get in the book of Ruth with me? I'm in Ruth chapter one, and I'll be working from chapter one, verse one down to verse seven. Let me read it in your hearing. It says, during that time, of the, during the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land and a man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi and the name of his two sons were Malhan and Chilon. And they were Ephraimites in Bethlehem in Judah. And they entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband Elimelech died and she was left with her two sons and her two sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was Orpha, the second was Ruth. And they lived in Moab about 10 years, and both Malin and Chalon also died. And Naomi was left without her two children and left without her husband. And she and her daughters-in-law set out to return to the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people his people's need for providing food. So she left the place where she was, where she'd been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Why don't you pray with me? <clears throat> Father in heaven, we thank you for this time. Thank you for the abundance of your goodness and mercy given to us so richly in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that you will be with us. Lord, allow this word to fall on fertile soil. Lord, you know that your people are going through some tough times right now. Lord, we ask that you would encourage their hearts and allow this word to really minister to their soul in Jesus name. Amen. According to Harvard Business Review, we make upwards of 2000 decisions every day. I know that sounds like a lot. Most of these decisions are inconsequential. Some of them are minor. But of those 2000 decisions that we make, about 70 of them are conscious and important ones. So that means that during our waking hours, we will make critical decisions every 15 minutes. And I argue simply because of the sheer amount of decisions that we have to make every day, learning how to, learning how to develop your decision-making process is perhaps one of the most important skills that you can develop. Why? Because it affects your health, it affects your safety, relationships, as well as your overall being. But if we're honest, many of us would admit that we don't always make the best choices in life. And as this article in the Harvard Business Review suggested, there are a number of contributing factors to our poor judgment. The first is simply because of the amount of decisions that we have to make on a regular basis, many of us are experiencing decision-making fatigue. Now, even the liveliest person and the liveliest people don't have boundless energy. And we're co and constantly performing these mental tasks wears us thin every day. And with so many decisions to make, especially big ones that impact people's lives, it's inevitable that we will experience decision-making fatigue. But another one is that we 
are experiencing a constant state of distraction. You know, there's been a technological tsunami that has occurred in the past decade. And researchers have told us that our brains process five times more information today than they did in 1986. And consequently, many of us live in a constant state of distraction and we struggle to focus. And you know that when your focus is divided, it makes it very hard to make good decisions and it often leads down the road to poor choices. And while we all experience decision-making fatigue, and each of us are constantly distracted, I would argue that the primary contributing factor to our poor decisions is our impulsivity. We act too quickly, we move too eagerly, we undertake things too urgently, and sadly, in our haste, we often fail to invite God into our process. And sometimes it's the little impulsive decisions that result in unintended, unintended consequences that end up causing us more grief than we anticipate. And I'll be honest with you, yes, decisiveness is a commendable trait. I'm married to a woman that's very decisive, but the only time she's not is when it comes down to selecting what we gonna eat for dinner. I'm gonna be honest with you, don't throw no stones at me, Sarah, I love you, baby. But, but, but that's, it's a commendable trait, but most situations in our lives are best handled when they go through a, a, a careful process of reading the scriptures, consulting with our advisors, and sensing where the spirit is leading us. Here's how I would encourage us in this, in this season in particular. Some of us need to spend less time deciding and more time discerning what God wants us to do. And this is especially true when we experience unanticipated consequences and crisis in life. When the seas of trouble pound against the seashores of our life, we often make hasty decisions without due consideration of the long-term effects. We, when unexpected calamities occur, we often use our hearts as the chart plotter to navigate ourselves out of the uncomfortable situation instead of sensing what the Lord would have for us to do. And collectively, we've all made some poor decisions. But the beautiful thing about the book of Ruth is it shows us that God can redirect us even when our lives have gotten off course. And that's what we see in our passage this morning. And although the book of Ruth is only 85 verses, it's beautifully poetic. It's a timeless love story. And some scholars treat this as ideological fiction, but I would argue that that's unreasonable for two reasons in particular. The first is that it's deliberately rooted in a specific historical time. He tells us right, that, that right there in verse one, during the times that the judges ruled. And if you're unfamiliar with the judges, I encourage you to read the book, but it's not for the faint at heart because it develops this theme of Israel's increasing spiritual infidelity. And ultimately, we see the pull of idol worship become so strong on God's people that they begin to conform to the culture instead of transforming it. The second reason that we can't treat this like ideological fiction is because Matthew, the tax collector who wrote the gospel that bears his name, confirms that this account and confirms this account by in, by by including Ruth as a part of Jesus's genealogy. And he must have gotten her name from this book because it literally appears nowhere else in the Old Testament. 
So I would encourage you this week, take the time to read these 85 verses because I think they're really ministered to your soul. But one of the things that's really helpful is that it's contained some profound principles that impact our lives today. Theologically, it works on sub sub themes like God's providence and how he can change your life from emptiness to fullness in unsuspecting ways. And ultimately, it demonstrates his unstoppable hesed love for his people. Though this poetic story was written generations ago, the backdrop is similarly similarly familiar to what we're experiencing today. Just back, just like then, we have a similar moral backdrop because it says that all people did what was right in their own eyes. And like our society today, there is no moral compass. People do as they please with little or no regard of what God has to say about it. There's a similar ethnic backdrop because they lived in a polarized society where particular ethnic groups were more valued than others. It's a similar economic backdrop because uh, they find themselves in a middle of a pandemic of epic proportions, just like we're in today. And then it has a similar emotional backdrop because in these four chapters, we find disappointment. We find despair, bitterness, regret and a myriad of emotions that are all too common to us today. But the beautiful thing about this book is it ultimately shows that God can restore your life when it's been derailed by bad decisions. And with that in mind, let's jump into our passage today. In the opening verses, we find that there is a sudden and and unanticipated famine in the land. The cause is not given here, but perhaps it's because of the warring oppressors and maybe they cut off the food supply. Maybe there's a a low pressure system that failed to form. Maybe it's because uh, Leviticus 2020 has been fulfilled when God promised that the land would not produce if if the people were unfaithful to him. We don't know. But what we know is that there is no food in the land. I just want you to imagine yourself in that position for a second. Imagine that there was no food. There was no supply chain. There was no grocery stores. The shelves at the bodega and the corner store were empty and you and your family were slowly being overtaken by hunger pains. And the irony can't be lost in us that the name Bethlehem means house of bread. But yet we find in this passage that there is no bread in the house. So facing this difficulty, Elimelech decides to act. So he rationalizes the situation and he decides that the best course of action for preparing for his family is to move out of Bethlehem. So he decides that he's going to move to the land of Moab in the midst of this time. Now, some of you are looking at that passage and you'll say, well, that sounds like swift and decisive leadership to me. There was a problem. His family was starving and he just went and executed a plan. Shout out to him. I would have did the same thing. And I thought that same thing initially. But as I read more, I realized that this was more of a hasty decision that did not that did not invite God into the decision making process. So do me a favor. Let's look underneath the layers of the scripture. And and instead of focusing on what he did, let's focus on what he could have done. By all accounts in this passage, he didn't take any time to pray. 
He didn't consult with the Lord. He didn't ask for God's opinion. He didn't go to the Torah. He didn't talk to a priest. It doesn't seem like he talked to a friend at all. There's no mention of him asking for God's direction or God's blessing in this passage. It doesn't look like he even conferred with wise counsel. It doesn't even look like, and it's probably unreasonable to think, that he even invited his wife into the process of the decision because it's a patriarchal society. But no, he decides to make a decision probably in isolation. He makes a quick, pragmatic decision. And let me be honest with you, that is the epitome of doing what's right in his own eyes. And it reminds me of Proverbs 14, 12 that says there is a way that seems right to the man, but the end is death. And like Elimelech, we, when we encounter unanticipated crisis in life, we immediately go into fixing mode. A lot of times we don't consult God. We don't have conversations with our life group leaders. We thinly veil them from our accountability partners, and we only give friends enough information so that they can tell us that that's what they would do in that situation. Elimelech made a decision in isolation. But here's what I want you to know. Not only was this a pragmatic decision, but it was a deeply and profoundly spiritual decision as well. Because God's presence clearly and distinctly was in that land. He promised that he was going to meet people in that land. And this was a place where God promised to provide. It was the house of bread in Bethlehem. And it seems like Elimelech, whose name means God is my king, lost sight of that very fact. So he loses the community. He leaves the place of worship. And, and he decides to make this decision outside of the counsel of God. And what happens is it has dire consequences. But honestly, can I, can I be honest with you? I think that this is also a cautionary tale. That we need to be careful leaving the place that God has us in search of better options. Let me say that again. We need to be careful about leaving the place that God has us in search for better options. And then we learn of all places he leaves to go. He settles in Moab. If you know about Moab, you know that Moab were longstanding enemies of Israel. They despised the people of God. This would have been so scandalous. This is what I want you to understand. This entire ethnic group started as an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. And on top of that, they resisted him. They resisted the people of God as they passed through Egypt. And the oppression of the Israelites by King Eglon, the king of Moab, would have been relatively recent and known by all. This was a morally corrupt and spiritually destitute place. And the reason, and he just blew by, he blew by all of these red lights. All of these things he just blew by. Let me just ask you a question. How many red lights do you blow by or bypass when you make decisions? Let, let me ask you, how many warning signs do you need? How many of your friends have to tell you that this is not a good idea? How many sermons do you need to convince you? How long will it take you to come to your senses? How much confirmation do you need to have in this season to realize that you are making a poor decision? How many and his actions lead us to believe that he believes he's a better provider than God. They communicate 
that he thought he he trusted in himself more than he trusted in the sustainer and provider of all things. And let me just be honest with you. It's easy to point fingers at Elimelech. It's very easy. Hindsight is 2020. But what are your decisions communicating about the God that you believe in? What are your decisions communicating to your friends? What are they communicating to your family? What are they communicating on social media and to your coworkers and acquaintances? What are your decisions making or saying about the God that you say you believe in? So he takes his wife and he takes his two sons whose names are awful, by the way. Uh, let me just throw that in there. Uh, and they settle in Moab. And then we find out in verse three that Elimelech dies. Things were going well for almost a decade and then he dies. The cause is unknown. We don't know what happened. But can you imagine what's going on in Naomi's mind right now? This was certainly not the dream of escape that she thought was going to happen. This was not the option that was presented to her. She fled a famine with her husband only to lose her husband in a presumed place of safety. Can you imagine how she is feeling in this moment? Can you imagine what it must be like to suffer such a loss and to be left alone in a foreign land? And the person that you love and trusted and that would provide security, provide security up and dies. And then on top of that, to make matters worse, her son went and married two Moabite women. Now, Moabite women weren't discouraged simply because of their ethnicity. No, it's because they worship false gods like Molech and Chemosh. And the latter one sacrificed children to idols. Let me just say this to you. Sometimes our decisions, like we see here, can cause unintentional generational problems. Because even after Elimelech is dead, he has left a legacy of making pragmatic decisions in isolation and that undoubtedly contributed to his son, his sons marrying women that didn't know God. Ultimately, he created a household or he created a climate of spiritual apathy in his household. Fathers, can I talk to you for a second? You have to be careful what you say and what you do around your children because they will often pick up on your worst habits. And this is what happens here. Your children are taking note of your behavior. They're taking note of your decision. But on top of that, not only do they go and they marry these Moabite women, but those women are infertile for over a decade, which in the scripture is often a sign that God is not favorably looking down on them. And then we see this, that a few years later, as it presupposes, that matters got worse and both of her sons died. And when they died, the natural hope of furthering their family goes, goes away as well. Naomi is left in the world without a husband and without a son. And perhaps that doesn't really startle you now, but an aged widow without the protection of a husband or the provision of a children in a patriarchal society was both lonely and a dangerous prospect. 
In fact, throughout the scriptures, we see widows described as the most vulnerable people on planet. And on top of that, she was far from home and more vulnerable than most. She fled her home in Judah, following after her husband, only to find that a famine happens. Then she loses her husband. Then she loses both of her children. So what happens is she goes into her golden years without a companion to love her. She goes into her golden years without children to care for her or grandchildren to energize her. Imagine at this point that she probably believes that her life is over. But can I be honest with you? These are the tragic consequences of poor decisions that create a cascade of problems and a domino effect of trials and unnecessary tri tribulations. And yet, what we see in the rest of the book is that just when you feel like your life is over, it's often just the beginning. Because thank God, as we will see in the breadth of this story, that, that no matter how dark things have been, no matter how tragic the events of your life have been, God is still working out his purposes in your life. I'm going to tell you about that in a few minutes. So the question you might be asking yourself is, what do I do with all this? What does this ancient story about an ancient family in an ancient land connect to my reality? Like, how does it all connect? And here it is. We are just like Elimelech. Each of us are guilty of trying to navigate our lives with our own solutions, our own way. We, we make our own plans, we devise our own schemes, we determine our own paths, and we jump into action without considering remotely what God would have us to do. And the problem with this approach to life is that any given time, any number of problems and crises can strike. And when that happens, we're caught off guard. Because we couldn't, we couldn't plan for every eventuality at, of life. We can't predict the future, even with great data. We, we, we can't manage the outcome of every situation, even with the best foresight. And ultimately, these, these unanticipated crises remind us that we are not in control. We're just not in control. Even though we've tried to kick God off of the, the throne of our life and put ourselves there and then at all times minimize his abilities or minimize who we are in order to exalt who we are, God sends unanticipated crisis to let us know that I will do whatever I've got to do to break the idolatry of control off of your life. That's what we see right here. We are not in control. Plans cannot protect us from crisis. That's the lesson here. Well, what do we do then? When we experience these unanticipated plans in life, what do we do? We do what Elimelech should have done, and we trust in the meaning of his name. His name means God is my king. And that means that God, but what happened with Elimelech is he made himself the king of his circumstance. 
His home, Bethlehem, was the house of bread, God's place of provision. But he longed to go out and create provision for himself. We must trust God as our king that provided for us through Jesus Christ. And not only in this life, but in the life to come. We must trust God is our king and our provision who made the world and shaped the world and sees the future from the past because he stands outside of time. We must trust God as our king because our crisis and unanticipated problems never catch him off guard. He not only brings us relief while to make it to the other side of our problems, but he gives us strength to walk on through it. And, and what I love about God is he gives us time release comfort while we go through the situation. When he finds out that you have a little bit of pain, there's a little bit of comfort. When he finds out that you're struggling about to lose your mind, he drops off a little comfort. He gives us comfort the most at places that we expect it the least. And we can trust God. Knowing that when we put our trust in him, we can cease to trust in our abilities to make our own plans that so often get derailed. We can trust God as our king to live free from the fear of tomorrow, the regret of yesterday and the need of control for today. <laughs> Let me just tell you, you can trust God as your king. And can you imagine how different your life would be? If you were not preoccupied with trying to anticipate every outcome and plan and every eventuality, can you imagine how freeing that would be? But here's the truth is that all of us have made hasty decisions. All of us have done things that don't make sense. And the truth is, is that we all wish that we can return to the past to unsay some things, to unmake some decisions and to undo some behavior. And frankly, a lot of us right now are going the wrong way. We're on the wrong path. We're going in the wrong direction. And if that's you today, I want to let you know that verse seven is for you. Verse six and seven is for you. Look what it says. It says she left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters in law. And she traveled along the road leading back to Judah. Did you catch that? She traveled back to Judah. She had been in this land for at least over a decade, but she decided that she was going to go back home. What does that mean? Here it is. No matter how vested you are in a bad decision, you can always make a U-turn. Like if there's air in your lungs right now, there is time for you to turn things around. If, 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 if your heart is still beating, there's still another chance for you to make this thing right. And I'm encouraging you, if you are headed in the wrong direction, get off at the next exit through repentance and turn yourself around. Because what we see in the rest of this book is once she turned around, once she repented of her self-sufficiency, once she changed the course of her life and started to go in the direction that God wanted her, he then at that point starts to pour out some of his provision. And here's what I want you to get about this book. This book starts with emptiness and it ends with fullness. It begins with famine and death and infertility. And it ends with Ruth bearing a child that will become one of the mothers of Jesus. And can I tell you that this is the picture of the resurrection? 
that it starts with death. It starts with the crucifixion on Friday, but it ends in the glorious resurrection of Sunday morning. She started out as a pagan and she eventually becomes part of the family of God. And can I tell you that just reminds you of you and I. That you and I, according to Ephesians 2, were darkened, or uh, Colossians 1, were, were darkened in our understanding that we were living futile lives, that we hated God, but at the right time, he loved us, and he died on the cross for us through Jesus Christ, and through that sacrifice, we were made family. This is what I love about Jesus, is that Jesus helps us make the right decision. Because 2,000 years ago, on that rugged, before he even came to the earth, he consulted with the Father and the Spirit. And they decided to put a plan in place that he will become a man, that he will live a life of perfection, that he will be spit upon, that he will be disrespected and struck by clenched fists, by clenched fists and he will die on a cross. And he was buried. But the beautiful part is three days later, before the, the while the dew was still on the roses, while well, the, the, the sun cracked the dark sky and Jesus rose again with all power in his hand. The old preacher would say he woke up with time in one hand and eternity in the other hand. And this is what I want you to understand. This is what I want you to get by Jesus making the decision to go to the cross. He made it possible for us to rebound from any bad decision that we've made in our lives. Let me say that again. By Jesus consulting with the Father and the Spirit and putting a plan in place, he ultimately made it possible for us to rebound from all of the de bad decisions that we've made in our life. So here's what I want to say to you today. What is preventing you from coming to this Lord and Savior? I hear somebody saying, well, you know, Pastor, I'm all jacked up. I'm messed up. You know, I, I, you know I've had multiple abortions. I've popped pills. I've done all type of things. Let me just tell you, I, I don't know how God can, can save somebody like me. Well, let me tell you this little story. Before I upgraded to a 2005 Acura MDX, I know it's an old car, but I ride raggedy cars. Amen, somebody. They all, they all I, mean, I just can't give them a car payment. You know what I'm saying? I just can't do that. But before I upgraded to this 2005 Acura MDX, I was riding around in a 1997 Geo Prism. The thing was raggedy. It was dented. The upholstery was ripped. It was just a messed up car. But can I tell you this? I, I held on to the car because it was my mother's car. She passed away in 2010 and, and she really loved that car. So what I did is even though it was imperfect, I held on to that car because it had deeper significance and value to me. And can I tell you today that Jesus loves you in a higher and holier way. He knows that your life has been dented by iniquity. He knows that the upholstery of your life has been ripped apart by your evil deeds. He knows about how you've been dinged up by your unrighteousness and your poor decisions. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is that he holds on to you anyway because you have deeper significance and value to him. So here's what I want to tell you today. Come to Jesus. Embrace Jesus today. For he loves you more than you can ever imagine. He wants to clean up your life and make you anew. Why don't you pray with me? Father, we do thank you so much for the abundance of your grace and mercy. Lord, we have made some of the poorest decisions in our life. We've done things rashly. 
We've, we've, we've made uh, hasty decisions, but we thank you that, Lord, in all of our hastiness, you still provide grace for us through your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we come to you, Lord, firstly, just repenting, recognizing that we have messed up and also just saying, Lord, we appreciate and thank you so much for your grace. So, Lord, I just ask and pray for anybody on the side of that camera today that's just struggling. Lord, that needs you. Lord, would you comfort their souls and help them to know that, Lord, choosing you is the best decision that they can make in their life. Because, Lord, you can take a rotten, messed up, dinged up life and turn it into something that's showroom quality. So, Lord, we love you. We honor you in Jesus name. Everybody that agree with that, just say amen. Amen. Well, listen, we're going to move into a time of communion. I'm going to go ahead and encourage you to go and get your communion elements at this time. I've got my grape juice and cracker. This looks like a fresh cracker too. praise the Lord. Somebody because some of them stale crackers I don't get down with. But but this is a but this but communion is an awesome time because this is one of the times where we get to remember the life, death and the life and the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We get to remember that his body was broken and we get to remember that his blood was poured out and he did that on the cross for us. So go ahead and grab your cracker. And Lord, thank you for this. This represents his broken body, which was broken for us. Why don't we eat it all together? Amen. This juice represents his poured out blood that they would say reaches to the highest mountain and flows to the lowest valley that this blood right here somehow it doesn't stain us and make us red it stains us and makes us clean that somehow we have life and life abundantly through this why don't we drink it all together amen Amen. Well, listen, Epiphany family, thanks so much for having me out today. I hope that word was encouraging to you. Thanks again. And look, I can't wait to spend some time with you guys again soon. God bless you. And we'll see you soon. Hello, this is Dr. Eric Mason, founder and pastor of Epiphany Fellowship. Thank you for tuning in today. Hopefully the word of God was a blessing to you. Also, if you want to help us build the kingdom from Philly and beyond, particularly in inner cities, partner with us today. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, based on his death, burial, and resurrection, place your confidence in him and go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Tune in next time so we can see you go from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. God bless you. Take care. We love you. We love you.